0: Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Welcome to BizzleCast, episode 5.5. 5. Initially, BizzleCast 5 was going to be one podcast, and it was going to basically be my review of the new Avengers movie, Avengers Age of Ultron, which is what 5.5 5 is going to be in just a minute or two, but... After the sphere erupted against Joss Whedon and the movie in the days following its release for some legitimate reasons, but mostly in my opinion irrational and really just immature um, reasons or motives even, I felt like I had to defend Joss's honor, and I know Joss does not need me defend his honor, but he did go to my school, Wesleyan University, and so I feel a kinship with him there, but I also love him as a writer and director, even before the Avengers movies. But specifically, I attempted to defend him against two camps. The first camp, which I probably could have just ignored, Especially to a lot of those listening here, are the super fans that are sort of on what I would call the far right of the super fan spectrum who were just finding such little nitpicks about the movie that you could tell going into it that they were consciously or subconsciously going to find reasons to either dislike it or like it significantly less than the first Avengers movie, which has become basically gospel or the film bible of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the people that are in love with or obsessed with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sequels never do as well as the originals. Financially, that's not necessarily the case. The Iron Man movies, each of the three, made more and more money, even though the second was far inferior to the other two. Nevertheless, a lot of people would still argue the first Iron Man's the best. It's pretty well accepted that The Empire Strikes Back, from a film standpoint, is the best Star Wars film, but it didn't make as much money in the box office as the original, and Return of the Jedi made even less. I think the word, from sort of a literary standpoint, that we can apply to this phenomenon is nostalgia. Our first time doing anything is always the best. Our first kiss, our first girlfriend, our first really exciting life experience, childhood in general. You know, how many times have you talked with someone who just goes on and on about how much they miss college and how everything kind of gone downhill since college without really acknowledging that In college, you're just a child with zero responsibilities and endless options of ways to have fun, which has no bearing or connection with the real world. And so if that's how you're going to define quality of life, then logically, of course, it's going to be the best experience of your life. Examine the premises. Premises are, let's have fun, let's party, let's not have any responsibilities, let's act like children, even though we're twenty. 21, 22 years old. Those are the premises. College is going to be the best time of your life. And I think super fans really did not examine their premises when they went into Age of Ultron and since they've seen Age of Ultron in all of the nonsense on the Twitter sphere. Joss Whedon, the director and writer, who had already basically tendered his resignation in terms of future movies months ago, and who admitted to being exhausted by the whole process, and who was tasked with setting up, essentially, the next five years of Marvel movies, in addition to telling his own tale, and who quit Twitter a few days after the movie came out because of all the hatred. It's just really sad. And the one thing that gives me solace in all this is that the reaction of the mainstream audience has been Very, very, very positive overall, both in my two viewings of the movie, where it was mostly casual viewers who had a great time and laughed a lot and gasped at certain moments that they weren't expecting, and online scores. Rotten Tomatoes, it's up around 78%, I think, for critics, and the high 80s for user reviews. IMDB, which I think in some ways is the best indicator of user scores because there are so many of them. And, you know, even though informal Internet polls are far from scientific, you have over 100,000 people voting on IMDB, where I think the score is at an 8.1 or 8.2 out of 10, which for IMDB is very, very, very good. Whereas in some of these other services, you're talking about people reviewing in the hundreds or the thousands. I'm probably also sensitive to this issue because I consider myself a super fan, although I don't abide by a lot of the sort of super fan orthodoxy that's out there. For example, I really don't care if the characters are significantly different than they are in the comic books, even though I grew up with comic books, because I care about great cinematic experiences. And if the characters are true to the way they're written in the movies and are portrayed well by the writers and especially the actors, that's what I care about. I also have just developed the ability over the years to sort of consciously lower my expectations when I'm going to see movies that I'm really excited about, whether they're the first in a series, like the original Avengers, or the first Lord of the Rings movie when it came out, which I was really nervous about because I love Lord of the Rings, the book, and still love it and loved it growing up and really just felt relief after that first Lord of the Rings movie. But so back to the Avengers, there was no way this movie was going to live up to it. And so I, while listening to lots of nerd podcasts and reading nerd websites, sort of self-filtering spoilers and information so as to get excited and be prepared for things, but not know too much, engaged in a process of scaling back my expectations. And I'm going to give myself a pat on the back at this one because it worked brilliantly. And as I mentioned in my mini review of the part one of this podcast where I talk about how I really liked the movie, I actually liked it more than I thought, was a nice side effect of having been able to scale back my expectations to the point where they were even lower than I thought they were until I saw the movie. With Avengers Age of Ultron, no one's really said it, but it's implicit that it is a Hollywood movie. All of these Marvel movies are, obviously, Hollywood movies. They're Hollywood movies both from a literal standpoint, coming from Hollywood studios, but also a structural standpoint in terms of the three-act structure and the story of the origins and rise of heroes and other Hollywood tropes. But to criticize Avengers Age of Ultron of being a Hollywood movie with a negative connotation and letting all the other Marvel movies off the hook doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me for a number of reasons. But going back to my ability to lower my expectations, my worst case scenario for Avengers Age of Ultron was that it would be a really good and fun Hollywood movie. That was my worst case scenario. And that is exactly what I got. And there are clearly haters out there who hate it for what it is or what they perceive it to be and based on expectations that they had for it. But if you just look at the film and how much goes on... And in terms of the running time of the film, how much of that time is taken up by action, even by Marvel standards, certainly by Joss Whedon standards. And yet, Joss Whedon and the actors gave us a lot of excellent and significant character moments that had a lot of depth to them at least in terms of a comic book movie or a mainstream Hollywood movie, where action is seen as the central core of what's supposed to happen in these movies or what people expect to happen in these movies. It just doesn't seem possible. ...in terms of how much of the movie is action for these character moments to even exist or have a chance to exist. And these character explorations are very Whedon-esque, both in terms of the heart behind them and the humor. And even though I think, deep down, that Joss would have preferred a somewhat slower-paced movie or at least a movie where things slow down more frequently than in your typical comic book or action Hollywood movie. But the reality of taking on a full-on comic book approach to a movie is that the comic book elements don't always work on screen. And other things do work on screen that aren't comic booky, even while the movie itself in most ways defines what is now the comic book movie genre. And as I've said many times, i read a lot of comic books growing up and am a big supporter of comic book culture for the most part. I'll still occasionally pick up and read a trade paperback of the best stories from the Marvel universe and some of the best stories have actually been written in the last decade which has both bolstered the movies but also provided a lot of storylines i mean Captain America the winter soldier in terms of the comic book series was written less than 10 years ago and now is one of the highest-grossing and most beloved Marvel movies of all time. I love looking at the art of some of the best comic book artists. Some of the stories are incredibly well-written. Without going into a full um, history lesson of the Marvel Universe, both comic and film, but specifically comic, In each decade since World War II, for the most part, there are upsides and downsides in terms of quality, and I was lucky that when I was starting to read in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a fresh crop of excellent writers who were at the controls, or at least holding the reins from a story standpoint, and that really helped suck me in and it's funny how many people online who are big Marvel fans now are around my age because of that very fact and now I think there's a lot more respect for graphic novels even referring to a comic trade paperback as a graphic novel helps sort of increase its Uh, credibility or at least attractiveness to non-comic book fans but the bottom line is they are graphic novels and there's a lot of reasons for this Um, the movies and the success of the Marvel movies is a big one also the fact that in the 90's continuing today Japanese manga which is their versions of graphic novels have become very popular in the United States and because that's considered a legitimate literary art form in Japan, which is a very cultured and very intelligent civilization, is another factor to why comic books are becoming, you know, (laughs) not just for nerds, basically. Back to Avengers Age of Ultron, Whedon has done an amazing job of integrating so many of the great things about comic books from the stories to the visuals. But with the sheer number of characters in this movie and with the amount of action that they wanted, it had to be a Hollywood-scale movie. And the budget for the movie at $220 million was, quote unquote, only $50 million more than the cost of the original Avengers at $170 million. But with the first Avengers, with $170 million, it's not like the money went to waste. But it's hard to see, based on the few locations they shot at, and the amount of CGI effects, while usually good, but not always spot on, were a tiny fraction of the number of locations and amount and density and quality of special effects in Avengers Age of Ultrod that $220 million is starting to look like a bargain in terms of what they got out of it. This was probably the most epic Earth-based movie that's ever been created. I know a lot of movies like Mission Impossible and Born. they go all over the planet. but when you look at the fact that with each location, the battles that are going on really involve the whole city of whatever location they're at. plus you add the ridiculous amount of superpower CGI and choreography. It's sort of in today's day and age at 200 million and change, seems like a pretty good deal. But even the small details, or apparently small details, for example, what they call pickups in Hollywood lingo. And if you're into films and especially into filmmaking, you know what pickups are. Pickups are essentially reshoots, um, either planned or otherwise where they mimic the real-world locations and environments in a Hollywood studio by creating enough of a backdrop and recreating the lighting where they can do some of that character stuff where it's close-ups and you don't need to see the whole city you can do that later in the process in order to save both money and time and when I said there are unplanned pickups there are also times usually having to do with sound actually, where they want to do a close-up scene on location and it just doesn't work with the sound. And sometimes you can do that through what they call ADR, which is basically overdubbing yourself later. Um, So you're kind of lip syncing uh, to the lines that you're saying, but sometimes you need a full visual reshoot. And so they recreate the environment in a smaller version in a controlled environment in the studio. And if they used a lot of those studio shots or any, I really didn't notice. And because I love watching behind-the-scenes stuff when the Blu-rays come out, um, or on DVD, or on TV, or on the internet, or whatever, um, and you listen to commentary, especially if you listen to, like, the directors, and the producers, and other people on the production team, and you see how things were filmed, you know that there was more going on in a studio than you would think, but things like sound and lighting make all the difference, and so, if there was a lot of studio stuff going on, I really didn't notice And that's just the brilliance of the production team, and the few sort of CG or environmental um, scenes or effects in the first Avengers that didn't quite work, you didn't see that at all here. And part of that was that the first Avengers was a bit rushed in terms of the production schedule. They moved it up from when they originally wanted to do it because they wanted to be able to tap into the momentum of the relative success of the solo movies before the first Avengers, certainly the Iron Man movies. But back to Joss Whedon, he did everything he was asked to do by Marvel and a lot more. And this is his M.O. And the and more is the writing and especially the humor of this movie which I think is already underrated, I think will be appreciated more over time. But this movie was funnier than the first Avengers, and there's a lot of reasons for why that's the case, besides just the writing of Joss Whedon. Sometimes in the Marvel films, you're kind of hit over the head with humor, like in the second Thor movie, Thor The Dark World, which is probably the weakest of all the Marvel I think most Marvel fans would agree with that. And it wasn't because it wasn't funny and Chris Hemsworth as Thor and the you know incredible Tom Hiddleston as Loki have great rapport and repartee and banter. The problem was there was humor that was removed from the plot and the characters. They were jokes. And that is the difference between being jokey and being funny. But it wasn't the jokiness that was the real problem. It was that jokiness in Thor the Dark World was kind of being used as a bomb um, or a band-aid to cover up a weak plot and a half-baked story and even character elements that didn't quite achieve what they were trying to achieve. Thor the Dark World was very jokey. The Avengers movies are funny. They happen to have some jokes, but a lot of them are character-driven, character-built and are constructed and evolve and eventually come to light over the course of the entire film. Some of the sort of running gags are pretty obvious um, in Joss Whedon's stuff. For example, in the very first scene of the movie when they're taking down Hydra and kicking ass, Iron Man runs into some defenses he doesn't expect and says, oh shit, and Captain America, who is you know now the official leader of the team, at least tactically the leader, is just like language, and so throughout the film, everyone's making fun of Rogers for being such a boy scout that even the word shit makes him feel uncomfortable. And then of course it pays off at the end when he's really in trouble and just screams out, Son of a bitch! And then everyone gets on him about it. Some of the jokes are just great character building moments that don't even need to have to do anything directly with the story and are very self-referential in almost a Seinfeldian way. Um, which Whedon loves to do. A perfect example is after the Avengers kick ass and seemingly win the first battle and they think maybe the last battle at least for a while and Tony Stark has a huge party at his pad which is Stark Tower this tall, sleek, self-sustaining building that we first saw in the first Avengers and which is Essentially, for most of the movie, the kind of headquarters for the Avengers, he, he's basically, Tony Stark is basically funding the operation even though he lets Cap take the lead for the most part when it comes to the actual fighting or missions themselves, and they throw a big party because they think they've taken down Hydra, which has been the main enemy for, you know, about a year now, both on TV and on screen, and there's a lot of great touches. You've got all these old war veterans who you realize eventually are actually uh Steve Rogers uh Captain America's friends and they're in their you know 80s and Captain America is like you know 30 because he was in ice for 70 years i thought that was a cool touch and then you got all the geek out moments of just all the special guests you know Anthony Mackie who's the Falcon uh named Sam Wilson who's become Cap's sort of best new buddy after the Winter Soldier, who's just an awesome, awesome actor. And it was great to see him, even though he's sort of a last-minute cameo addition. But back to the humor, Don Cheadle appears, and he has been really underused in all the Iron Man movies, in my opinion. Um, He, in the comics, his character, Rhodesy is called War Machine, with a really badass black Iron Man suit, and he and Iron Man together kick, but they go out on missions. He actually helps Iron Man, and the two suits are so complementary in terms of what they do. They just didn't really use Cheeto enough, or in the right way, in the Iron Man movies. But in this movie, he makes a great appearance. He's finally called War Machine, which you know, maybe he's a little aggressive of a name, but that's how it is in the comics, and I know I'm making fun of people who say, oh, that's how it should be in the comics, but really, he should be War Machine, and he should be much more on par from sort of a tactical or power level standpoint with Iron Man. He's with Thor, and I think Tony, or maybe it's Cap, I think it's Thor and Tony, and Don Cheadle, um a.k.a. James Rhodes, a.k.a. War Machine, is telling a story that you can tell he's very proud of, and he's probably told a million times before about some third-world country. He, in order to threaten the uh, general or whoever, who was the bad guy and whatever happened there, Don Cheadle's character in the War Machine suit picks up a tank of the bad guys and drops it in front of the general's quarters, and is just like, BAM! And no one laughs, (laughs) because he's dealing with superheroes who are much more powerful and experienced than he is, and he's very upset about it. And then three minutes later, you see him with a bunch of civilians tell the same story, and they crack up, and he is just so self-satisfied and lovably cocky and arrogant way um, that Cheadle just plays beautifully. So uh, Joss just has mastered so many different kinds of jokes and and humor, and he's not even afraid to put in, you know, a couple jokes that seem kind of corny or, or, you know, just cliched. On The Avengers, I think the classic one is um, early in the film, um, when we first see Thor, he steals Loki, the war criminal and his brother, who's his brother, away from Tony Stark and uh, Captain America and Black Widow, who are trying to bring him back to their base on the helicarrier to interrogate him and figure out what he's doing to try and destroy the world. Thor comes out of nowhere, comes in the plane, takes Loki, jumps out, and are gone. And suddenly, Stark is in the Iron Man suit, about to go after Thor and get back Loki. And Captain America says, Stark, we need a plan of attack. And Iron Man just goes, I have a plan. Attack. And this is a very corny line, but just works perfectly with the characters and what's going on within the story. And just when you have great actors and and filming and editing, you can make it work. Another example of sort of basic humor that Whedon just makes work better than most could. Uh, And this was in the trailers, not much of a spoiler, but at some point there's a really cool scene where Black Widow drops straight out of the stealth jet on a very Batman-esque motorcycle. And in the fighting, Cap has lost his shield, and Scarlet needs to get to Cap anyways to help him fend off all of these enemies, and so Black Widow figures, well, I better get the shield, because we know as great as Cap is, he needs a shield to really fully do his thing. And as she cruises past the shield and picks it up with one hand while still driving, she said, I'm always picking up after you guys. And again, not a super hilarious line on its own, but if you've been watching all the movies and following the development of all the characters, in some ways... Black Widow is always picking up after them. And these guys who are technically more powerful than she is in terms of having superpowers or enhanced battle suits and so forth, but Black Widow is just the one who knows how to get stuff done because she has been pulling stunts like this long before the Avengers ever came together when she was a long-time top operative for S.H.I.E.L.D. And this brings me back to the point about the characters and why the characters make this movie, even if there's certain things about it that people don't like. And the point is, because we have a Marvel Cinematic Universe that has numerous team-up movies and even more solo movies, the directors constantly, whether it's Whedon or someone else have to figure out how to make the general audience understand the motivations and histories and personalities of the characters while still building on past films and building towards future films. And so while in my first viewing, which I talked about in Bizzlecast 5.0, one of my criticisms was that it was too dense with comic booky stuff going on. The general audience seems to like it better than the mega super fan minority. And so for the general audience to love Whedon's work here and for a portion of the mega super fan audience to hate what he's done here, while Whedon produces, directs, writes, and makes happen, Arguably the most comic book-y movie ever made. There's so many action scenes that are straight from panel to screen, as we say, that come right from the pages of the comics that they're based on and translate into the language and visuals of film, but still retaining that feeling of reading the comics. I mean, it starts with that first money shot a minute into the movie where they're assaulting the HYDRA base and there's a slow motion shot from the side where you see the profiles of all the heroes running, jumping, riding, flying together in the same direction. What we would call a hero shot if it were a single hero, but is a hero's shot in the direct sense, but also in the comic booky sense, of just giving you the chills of excitement of seeing them all fighting together in one frame. And the whole movie was really shot like that, especially in the battle scenes and the important parts of the battle scenes as the movie moves forward. It's important that they're not just a team of individuals, that they are a united front that don't always agree, but when it comes time to throw down, they have each other's backs and they don't think twice about it. There were so many great things that went on in this movie that, you know, any flaws in terms of pacing or too much action, some confusing plot elements, at least on first viewing, that are much clearer when you watch it a second time. In terms of individual characters, the character that was most criticized was Thor. And the criticism is not of Chris Hemsworth, the actor who does a great job, again, is actually quite hilarious in this movie. I love the way he's sort of starting to adopt the Tony Stark slash Avenger style of dry, sarcastic, playful humor, but that his sort of side plot in the movie was a bit confusing um, from a story standpoint, upon first viewing, you know, the first time I saw it, it was clearly setting up the next Thor movie. And again, this is me following the Marvel Cinematic Universe closely. And Marvel, in October, in an unprecedented way, actually announced all of the Phase 3 movies, with basically 10 movies that includes not only the final solo movies of Captain America and Thor, at least for now, And not just the final Avengers movies, but a whole number of new properties. But we are told that the third and final Thor movie is not only called Ragnarok, which means the end of all things in Norse mythology, and usually results in the gods all dying and being reborn. And so Thor is seeing visions about the mortality that he never considered a possibility. We're also told during that conference in October that he is going to be in the exact place that he ends up at the end of Age of Ultron. So they're setting up the future movies, but thematically it actually works much better um, on the second viewing because it actually leads towards Thor taking control at the climax. And I don't want to spoil the climax, but let's just say that... There is a new player, a new superhero, that comes to be and whose appearance and powers in mere existence is very different from anything that not only we've seen, but that the Avengers themselves have seen. And Thor is crucial to that, and the weird visions he has has a big part to do with that. And this brings us to the Infinity Jebs. Uh, <laughs> a quick disclaimer, if you know what the Infinity Gems are about, um, and they have been explained a little bit in Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, more power to you, and I am one of those people, and we're huge nerds, uh, but it's a pretty cool concept, and if you don't know what the Infinity Gems are, or don't understand what they are, then I apologize now, um... This is about as dirty as it gets. But the bottom line is, the Infinity Gems are going to play a huge role leading up to the Avengers climax in 2018, in 2019, and in numerous films leading up to it, including Guardians of the Galaxy 2. But essentially, as we're told by Benicio Del Toro's sort of space Liberace character, the collector in Guardians of the Galaxy, when the Big Bang exploded and the universe came into existence, the power and energy of the creation of the universe was captured to a certain degree in six gems that represent the six different aspects Um, or substances that make up the universe, and that these gems are incredibly powerful. In the Guardians of the Galaxy finale, where you see the Infinity Gem Um, the purple one, and it explodes into this crazy final sequence where they try and keep the Infinity Gem from the big bad guy and keep it under control. That's an example of an Infinity Gem that we were told specifically is an Infinity Gem. And Avengers goes a step further, in openly, through Thor's narrative, um, and, you know, interesting, actually, Thor knows a little bit more about the Infinity Gems than I was expecting. And so, I don't want to spend too much time on this. If you just Google Marvel Infinity Gems um, or the Infinity Gauntlet, uh, especially because the final Avengers movies are called Infinity War Part 1 and Part 2, it would come in handy for the next few years, but not necessary because we will get a full explanation of their power and actually the mid credit sequence after Avengers ends shows clearly and definitively that what the Infinity Gems are and how they're used in the comics is pretty much how they're going to be utilized in the Phase 3 Marvel movies. And the way they're going to be utilized is by an ancient, powerful, extremely powerful and extremely evil being named Thanos who was first teased at the end of the first Avengers, who actually appears as a character, not a central character, but a crucial character in Guardians of the Galaxy. You find out that he's the one manipulating things throughout the galaxy or throughout the universe. He was manipulating Loki in the first Avengers, even gave Loki the uh, staff... Um, that had such great power, could control people's minds and create great destruction. He was somewhat behind um, the events of Guardians of the Galaxy, and he is the one that is going to wield the Infinity Gauntlet. And this isn't really a spoiler, because... It's been in a million comics over the decades, and you can find it all over the internet, and Marvel is not trying to hide it, but essentially, the six Infinity Gems fit into a special gauntlet that he may or may not have, although the mid-credits scene at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron seemed pretty definitive that he had the gauntlet, or is close to getting it. And if you put all six Infinity Gems in that gauntlet, you basically become a god even far beyond the demigod level of Thor and his people on Asgard. He basically has the power of the universe, and everything's building towards this giant cosmic battle that is going to be really cool, but when you're teasing something like that over five six seven years inevitably is gonna seem kind of shallow or unengaging and the reality is i don't think joss whedon really cares about thanos which in my analysis may be part of the reason he's leaving the marvel cinematic universe at least for now I think he's just exhausted as well, because of the scale of doing two Avengers movies in less than five years. Thanos is kind of the classic big, bad, horrible, the worst and most powerful villain ever, without much personality, at least so far. And we're not going to see him in full power until years and years and years of movies. I mean, between the first Avengers and the last is seven years. And there's something like 12 or 13 movies during that time period. As cool as the Infinity Gauntlet concept is, again, big nerd alert here, it's just not that compelling even to a superfan like me and is probably just confusing to the general audience if they haven't seen all the movies or even if you've seen all the movies one time but not enough to really to digest all of the little Easter eggs and mini intentional spoilers and so forth peppered throughout some but not all of the Marvel films he's certainly far less compelling at the moment by far, than Loki, who's become a huge fan favorite. Um, He's Thor's brother, or at least adoptive brother, and is very much a Shakespearean character, who is the hero of his own story, and who has some reasonable motivations, is not pure evil, but because of his past, and where he came from, and his jealousy of Thor, and his hunger for love and power over others, and, of course, more so just Tom Hiddleston's really um, charismatic and just hypnotic performance as Loki, that he became the villain of the first Avengers movie, and I don't know whether that was originally in the plan or not, because there's only a year between Thor and the Avengers, 2011 and 2012 respectively, it seems likely that he was in the plans. And if that is true, then I give Marvel even more credit, because that means they recognized how great Hiddleston was, even in the early development phase or at least filming phase of the first Thor movie, so that Whedon could write an entire movie around him in the first Avengers. But back to Thanos, it really comes down to the fact that Marvel has been planning for a while and is now executing a vast cosmic element to the Marvel Universe, of which Earth is just a small part. While... The first Avengers was the first major alien invasion and encounter on Earth in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The first Thor movie in 2011 was obviously very cosmic. Thor is a cosmic character. But even in Thor's mythology vis-a-vis Marvel, there are only nine realms or nine planets, essentially, that Thor and... The people of Asgard, the demigods of Norse myths, who are actually real and possess massive amounts of power and are demigods, if not full-on gods. That was very cosmic, but it was still limited to the Nine Realms, and there was a few hints in Captain America, of course, what was later known as the Tesseract, was known as the Cosmic Cube in the first Captain America. And, you know, it's called the Cosmic Cube, and it gave great power to the Red Skull, who was the head of the Nazi rogue science division, who were actually more evil than the Nazis. He's actually, you know, Red Skull is is too evil for Hitler, which makes him both kind of a cartoonish character, but also a very frightening character. And was as a quick aside a semi stand-in for hitler and the nazis in general in the captain america comics during and after world war ii to represent all the horrifying evil of the nazis without being directly political but tackling the same themes in terms of death and destruction and the holocaust and all of that But the first real alien encounter was in the first Avengers, and Joss handled it well. Never really complained about it. And, you know, that final battle in New York, for the most part, was pretty awesome and opened up the universe in a way that we hadn't seen up to that point. Obviously, with Guardians of the Galaxy, we took a huge leap as an audience with the movie makers to a much more cosmic vision of the Marvel Universe, both literally and figuratively, when Chris Pratt, who plays um, Star-Lord Peter Quill, he's abducted from Earth and is raised and lives among seemingly all non-humans. As far as we can tell, while people look human, he's the only actual Terran, as they call him. And, as mentioned previously, with Benicio del Toro as the collector, who collects items of infinite value, and, of course, the Infinity Gems would be among them, and the collector is aware of the Infinity Gems, but Chris Pratt and his ragtag crew, which become the Guardians, really don't know a whole lot about it until Benicio gives what's arguably the greatest most compelling exposition ever seen on film not only because it's so long but because it's so obscure even the people who are familiar somewhat with Marvel comics and esoteric but was crucial in turning to the next chapter of the Marvel universe so if Captain America the Winter Soldier early in 2014 was a major turning point for the Marvel Cinematic Universe in terms of making it darker and more grounded in sort of our political reality in the, you know, real world. Then with Guardians, the MCU turned forward multiple chapters that really, even more than the Avengers movies in some ways, set up the ultimate showdown with Thanos in the final Avengers movies. And so I think that Joss and his style of making films, which is so much about the immediacy of characters and their relationship to one another, especially because he's not going to be around for the cosmic part, and because he's essentially been forced to work in some of these cosmic elements. Now, I don't feel totally bad for Joss on this account, because he knew what he was getting into. By the time Avengers was getting made, they kind of knew that the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or the MCU, was going to take off and going to be able to head in a ton of new directions, and that he was going to have to kind of launch that in the first Avengers. But I think he loved the story of Ultron so much, we actually, we know via interviews with him that that was the first Avengers movie, or I should say, that was the Avengers movie that he wanted to make first, but Marvel said, no, we got to introduce the team and then we'll let you make Age of Ultron. Problem is when you add in Thor the Dark World and Guardians of the Galaxy especially, and expanding the cosmic vision of the universe, this all happened between the two films. And so I think he might have underestimated the level to which he was going to be required to set up not only future movies, but the cosmic vision of the MCU. And I think that probably factored in to some of his dissatisfaction, Um, and maybe part of why he's leaving. But again, I think he's mostly leaving because doing two Avengers movies in a handful of years is just a ridiculous amount of work and responsibility. And Joss is such a creative mind, and I don't know if people realize that he still approaches these huge-budget movies with the same mentality that he approached Firefly, which was an incredibly low-budget TV show, which is sort of a quirky indie writer-director, and that's what makes the Avengers movie so good and so different and so interesting. And so, Joss, we're going to miss you. As usual, (laughs) the Bizzlecast is running on here, and... I wanted it to be a spoiler free podcast, or at least once I started working on it, I decided to make it a spoiler free podcast because I want people to see this movie and I don't want to spoil it for you. I just want you to get a taste of what makes it so good. The last couple things I'll talk about are Ultron and the Scarlet Witch. Ultron, of course, is the big bad guy and Tony Stark a.k.a. Iron Man, along with Bruce Banner, when he's not being the Hulk, they are brilliant, brilliant scientists. And with Loki's scepter from the first Avengers that they're able to recapture at the beginning of Age of Ultron, turns out to be way more powerful than even they thought or experienced in that it was operating similar to how an advanced AI was operating. And so they think... By harnessing the power of the scepter, they can create a benevolent AI to protect the planet from the greater threats to the planet, from off-world, from outside of the universe. Problem is, Tony's desperation to do this isn't coming out of laziness or lack of will, although I'm sure they're all a little tired at this point, constantly saving the world, but it's because that... When they attack the HYDRA base at the beginning of Age of Ultron, and all sorts of stuff happens, they run into two Eastern European twins who, for reasons I'll leave out, really don't like the Avengers, and particularly don't like Tony Stark, having to do with his involvement in the weapons industry, which he's not really involved in anymore, but used to be. And a lot of innocent people died because of that, even though at the time he wasn't aware of it. The Scarlet Witch and her twin brother Quicksilver were experimented on by Hydra. And just to recap, Hydra was a spin-off of the Red Skull's um, Nazi rogue science division during World War II that infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D. over the course of decades and decades and decades and wasn't exposed until Captain America the Winter Soldier, where Cap and Black Widow and some others... um, figure it out, and bring down both S.H.I.E.L.D. and Hydra. Um, They're forced to bring down S.H.I.E.L.D., to bring down Hydra, because it had become such a virus at that point. But while Tony's in the base, picking up the Scepter, the Scarlet Witch, one of the two twins, Wanda Maximoff, who's by far the more powerful of the two twins, although Quicksilver, being, you know, speed of light guy, can do some serious damage. The Scarlet Witch has some sort of energy powers that can both manipulate objects but can also manipulate minds in a way similar to the way that Loki's scepter was able to manipulate and control minds. Wanda can control people over a long period but she can make them have some pretty screwed up visions and she made Tony have a vision of all of his friends dead because he didn't do enough to save them and so he's desperate to make Ultron, which is what he calls his AI project, desperate to make that as soon as possible. And there's so many cool aspects to Ultron in the movie. I don't want to spoil them, but I will say that some people complained that while Ultron was scary at points and was clearly very powerful, one of the complaints was that he became evil almost immediately. Um, This wasn't one of these cases of an AI growing slowly over time and then becoming corrupt. As soon as he came into being, he immediately wanted the Earth's destruction. But the reason that's the case is because he's programmed to save humanity, but within his programming language, he comes to the conclusion that the only way to save humanity is to, firstly, destroy the Avengers and anyone of great power on Earth who would get in his way, and secondly, to push humanity to evolve, but if they didn't evolve the way he wanted them to evolve or thought they should evolve, he was going to kill them all and either start over with a Noah's Ark scenario or just annihilate them completely. And with everything going on in the movie and how much Joss had to pack in, I was totally fine with that happening um and actually you know later on in the movie, it becomes clear why he jumped to why Ultron jumped to that conclusion so quickly he's very human in his face. Um, it Actually, his face reminds me of Groot a little bit from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a non-human face, but the facial expressions are there and are recognizable. The other complaint about Ultron is that he's too funny. It's James Spader, and Spader is hilarious. And, you know, I think what got lost on people is that Ultron really is sort of the um, Pinocchio stepchild... Uh, whatever you want to call it, of Tony Stark. And so, while he's sort of the negative of Tony Stark, the evil side of Tony Stark, um, the way Agent Smith in The Matrix became the opposite evil version of Neo, Ultron also maintains Tony's sense of wit and is constantly trying not to be the evil robotic (laughs) version of Tony Stark, but he can't really help himself. And so... People complain that he's too funny for a villain, but I still think that the overall scenario was so, you know, it was dark enough, and it was scary enough, and it's Joss Whedon, and the bad guys are always going to be the heroes of their own story, and are usually going to be funny. I really, really enjoyed Ultron. And again, as I mentioned before, in terms of the effects and CGI, it never looks fake. I mean, honestly. I mean, you know you're looking at CGI in principle, but you don't even think about it after a while. And so that's Ultron, and James Spader is disturbing and hilarious, as we expected him to be. I want to finish talking about Elizabeth Olsen, who is a 26-year-old woman who hasn't been in a lot of movies. She was in Godzilla and a few more uh, smaller indie movies, and she plays the Scarlet Witch. As I mentioned, she's playing an Eastern European twin um, who has been experimented on by Hydra, the descendant of the rogue Nazi science division, and develops these telekinetic and telepathic powers in ways that kind of are similar to Jean Grey, actually, in the X-Men, or even because, you know, she's sort of nominally a bad guy for a chunk of the movie, more like Dark Phoenix. The cooler thing about Scarlet Witch, though, is while Jean Grey is telekinetic and can move stuff around um, and get in people's heads, Scarlet Witch's telepathy and telekinesis is represented by this amazing, sort of, wispy, red energy fields that she controls with her hands, and she does all sorts of stuff with. You know, it's not really a spoiler, because everyone knows it, and it's out there. That At some point, her and her brother, for various reasons, uh, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, become, if not Avengers, then at least on the side of the Avengers, once they realize what Ultron is up to. But... In addition to being beautiful, um, I mean, Elizabeth Olsen kind of reminds me a little of Maggie Gyllenhaal, um, just her looks, but she has this sort of sexy goth thing going, um, and the costume department did a great job of making her look really sexy, but also, you know, not too much that she still looks girlish. I mean, she's 26 now, but she was probably 24 when this started. A lesser actor, actress, would not have been as compelling, not because she was a two-dimensional character, or I should say, not because she was a one-dimensional character, but because even above-average interpretation and portrayal of the character would make her a very cool two-dimensional character. But she adds that third dimension, not in terms of her motivations, or, or not solely in terms of her motivations, but just the way she commands the screen. And she develops... A pretty intense um, and very real um, relationship with Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner, in sort of a father-daughter scenario or you know complex. Um, And a quick aside, Jeremy Renner, who got a little screwed in the first Avengers because he was mind-controlled by Loki the whole time, and so he didn't have a ton of screen time and was a zombie, essentially, for most of it. But when it came down to it at the end of the first Avengers, you got to see him kick butt as an Avenger with the bow and arrow, which can be so ridiculous. He made it look super badass, and he got to have some wit and some humor. He is really the centerpiece of this movie, in a lot of ways, and there's a major revelation about his life that I'm not going to spoil that is absolutely fantastic, and grounds him in, in a way that he, he really is the most human of all the Avengers, and that makes him, you know, the guy that the audience is kind of watching this happen with. He's brave and courageous, but not fearless, and not afraid to show a little bit of nervousness and fearless. Um... You know, people forget that before the events of the first Avengers, Hawkeye and Black Widow were spies and assassins. They were used to dealing with human forces, into dealing with aliens and now a giant robot army. This is all new to him. But he is ultimately able to connect with the twins. And Renner, who I love from the Hurt Locker and have always seen potential in, Who's was kind of uninspiring in his Bourne movie and also in the Mission Impossible movie he was in, but that all comes back to writing. And most directors, when an actor like Jeremy Renner, who was very open about not being angry but disappointed at his limited role in the first Avengers and how he would like more screen time in the second Avengers, most directors slash writers... Would not factor that in at all. They would say, well, you know, you're not a major character, and I'm not gonna spend the time to make you a major character, and so you're just gonna do your Hawkeye stuff, and I'm gonna make the final decisions, so and you gotta live with it. But Joss, firstly, because he loves his actors always, and is always trying to be sensitive to their needs, but more so because he loves a good challenge, clearly challenged himself. To make Hawkeye one of the centerpieces if not the centerpiece at least from a dramatic standpoint of Avengers Age of Ultron and really just delivers on both the dramatic and the comedic fronts and I think that if he was sort of a revelation in the Hurt Locker I think this is actually his breakout performance because it shows so many dimensions and so many angles to his acting ability we know he's going to be in Captain America Civil War next year probably gonna be in a bunch more films including the Avengers movies that close it out a few years down we're gonna see more and more of him and he's absolutely fantastic and his chemistry with the twins when he gets a chance is just super believable and is definitely kind of a dad-kids relationship, uh, without being cheesy. But Elizabeth Olsen a Scarlet Witch, just the physicality of the way she moved, you know, people with sort of magical powers, and as far as we know, it's basically magic. We can't explain it. We know she was experimented on. But it can come off as super cheesy. And in a year and a half or so, Benedict Cumberbatch is going to, play Doctor Strange, another character from the Marvel Universe that anyone who reads comics knows about but never really was able to carry his own series. But because of the visual awesomeness of him being a straight-up sorcerer, the Sorcerer Supreme, it is going to be sort of a grown-up Harry Potter, I think, is what we're looking at there. Scarlet Witch, though, really makes it seem like a superpower and not magic. And she's kind of Going after the Avengers here, or there as the movie goes on. But when the gauntlet's thrown down, and she decides she's had enough of the bad guys of Ultron, and is just pissed at what's happening to her home, just sells that anger so brilliantly that you're almost a little scared of her. This, you know, this wispy little, uh, you know, young woman in her mid twenties. And uh, she just really got the visuals of what her powers were supposed to look like. And they do so many things. And the movement of her arms and hands, um, little details like that. And just her screen presence and sexiness and intelligence and wit really are hypnotic. And there were a lot of things I was excited about rewatching in my second round of Avengers Age of Ultron, but she was definitely at the top. And she is now an Avenger, and she's going to be in Captain America's War, and we're going to be seeing a lot of her. And they cast her young on purpose. I think it's a great idea, same way that in Star Wars Episode Seven, J.J. cast Daisy Ridley, unknown young actress, to play the lead female role. It's just so much more... Exciting when it's an actor or actress that you're just not used to seeing and then when they kill it When they knock it out of the ballpark like Renner and Anthony Mackie do in the Hurt Locker And it's funny now that they're on the same team after being you know on the same team in the Hurt Locker Elizabeth really stole my heart and anyone who knows me knows that I am a humongous Scarlett Johansson fan. I talked about her a lot I know there's some mixed opinion about her, but I haven't seen a single movie of hers since she was first in Lost in Translation, where she wasn't great, even movies that weren't top-notch movies. Now we're starting to get more female superheroes, but, you know, she was one of the guys in the first Avengers, but still managed to be, a you know, a full-fledged woman, um, and really is paving the way for all these female superhero characters. Now she's going to be in Ghost in the Shell, which I have talked about before. An extremely famous and popular anime series of movies and TV seasons, and even mangas, graphic novels from Japan, and is one of my favorite properties on the planet. Scarlet's really taking it over. I also love Zoe Saldana, as someone referred to her the reigning queen of science fiction, because she's already been in Avatar, and two Star Trek movies and Guardians of the Galaxy. She's now filming three more Avatar movies. There's gonna be at least one more Star Trek film, and there's gonna be at least one more Guardians of the Galaxy movie, and I can't imagine more are not, you know, on the books at least going forward. Not to mention, it's pretty clear that in one or both of the final Avengers movies, the Guardians have to show up in a major way. Because with the Infinity Gem stuff, they're really trying to link these two together. The Cosmic Universe and the Earth Universe. And I just think Zoe is so talented. She's one of those few actresses that manages to be really sexy, but in a sort of undistracting way. But can also be really cute and adorable when she decides to be sensitive or when it calls for it and I think Elizabeth Olsen is the third right now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, without question, and I think Captain Marvel, aka Miss Marvel, aka Carol Danvers, will be that when Captain Marvel comes out in a couple years, and this is a great trend, so I could go on about this forever, get yourself out, if you're still listening to this, get your butt out there, see Age of Ultron, it's really, really good, I didn't expect it to like it more on my second viewing, but I Did and so I look forward to seeing it at least once more if not twice more getting it on Blu-ray and you know I guess my one piece of advice if there are any mega super fans listening to this is learn how to lower your expectations and on top of that learn how to appreciate a lot of things in a movie that may not in your eyes be perfect but if you look at all the great parts of it you realize that it is such a good movie And you can live with the other stuff. I don't personally think there's anything particularly egregious or even that bad. But I'm sympathetic to people who didn't like certain parts. But appreciate what you have. What went into it. The absolute love and devotion and reverence and respect that Whedon and all the actors and all the production team had for this movie. With this movie and in this movie. So... I'm going to say it, because Cap did it, Avengers Assemble, and I will be seeing you soon talking about God Knows What. Bizzle out.